Chapter Two of Seven Keys to Baldpate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Umpleby. Seven Keys to Baldpate by Earl Dare Biggers. Chapter Two. Enter a Lovelorn Haberdasher. Baldpate Inn did not stand tiptoe on the misty mountain top. Instead, it clung with grim determination to the side of Baldpate, about halfway up, much as a city man clings to the running board of an open street car. This was the comparison Mr. McGee made, and even as he made it, he knew that atmospheric conditions rendered it questionable. For an open street car suggests summer and the ballpark. Baldpate Inn, as it shouldered darkly into Mr. McGee's ken, suggested winter at its most wintry. About the great black shape that was the inn, like arms, stretched broad verandas. Mr. McGee remarked upon them to his companion. "'Those porches and balconies and things,' he said, "'will come in handy in cooling the fevered brow of genius.' "'There ain't much fever in this locality,' the practical Quimby assured him. "'especially not in winter.' Silence, Mr. McGee followed the lantern of Quimby over the snow to the broad steps and up to the great front door. There McGee produced from beneath his coat an impressive key. Mr. Quimby made as though to assist, but was waved aside. "'This is a ceremony,' Mr. McGee told him. "'Some day Sunday newspaper stories will be written about it. Baldpate Inn opening its doors to the great American novel. He placed the key in the lock, turned it, and the door swung open. The coldest blast of air Mr. McGee had ever encountered swept out from the dark interior. He shuddered and wrapped his coat closer. He seemed to see the white trail from Dawson City, the sled dogs straggling on with the dwindling provisions, the fat Eskimo guide begging for gun drops by his side. Phew! he cried. We've discovered another pole. It's stale air, remarked Quimby. You mean the polar atmosphere, replied McGee. Yes, it is pretty stale. Jack London and Dr. Cook have worked it to death. I mean, said Quimby, this air has been in here alone too long. It's as stale as last week's newspaper. We couldn't heat it with a million fires. We'll have to let in some warm air from outside first. Warm air, <laughs> remarked Mr. McGee. Well, live and learn. The two stood together in a great bare room. The rugs had been removed, and such furniture as remained had huddled together, as if for warmth, in the center of the floor. When they stepped forward, the sound of their shoes on the hard wood seemed the boom that should wake the dead. "'This is the hotel office,' explained Mr. Quimby. At the left of the door was the clerk's desk. Behind it loomed a great safe, and a series of pigeonholes for the mail of the guests. Opposite the front door, a wide stairway led to a landing halfway up, where the stairs were divorced and went to the right and left in search of the floor above. Mr. McGee surveyed the stairway critically. A great place, he remarked, to show off the talents of your dressmaker, eh, Quimby? Can't you just see the stunning gowns coming down that stair in state, and the young men below here agitated in their bosoms? No, I can't, said Mr. Quimby frankly. I can't either, to tell the truth, 
laughed Billy McGee. He turned up his collar. It's like picturing a summer girl sitting on an iceberg and swinging her open-work hosiery over the edge. I don't suppose it's necessary to register. I'll go right up and select my apartments. It was upon a suite of rooms that bore the number seven on their door that Mr. McGee's choice fell. A large parlor with a fireplace that a few blazing logs would cheer, a bedroom whose bed was destitute of all save mattress and springs, and a bathroom comprised his kingdom. Here, too, all the furniture was piled in the center of the rooms. After Quimby had opened the windows, he began straightening the furniture about. Mr. McGee inspected his apartment. The windows were all of the low French variety, and opened out upon a broad snow-covered balcony, which was in reality the roof of the first-floor veranda. On this balcony McGee stood a moment, watching the trees on Baldpate wave their black arms in the wind, and the lights of Upper Asquewan Falls wink knowingly up at him. Then he came inside, and his investigations brought him, presently, to the tub in the bathroom. "'Fine!' he cried. "'A cold plunge in the morning before the daily struggle for immortality begins.' He turned the spigot. Nothing happened. "'I reckon,' drawled Mr. Quimby from the bedroom, "'you'll carry your cold plunge up from the well back of the inn before you plunge into it. The water's turned off. We can't take chances with busted pipes.' "'Of course,' replied McGee less blithely. His ardor was somewhat dampened, a paradox, by the failure of the spigot to gush forth a response. "'There's nothing I'd enjoy more than carrying eight pails of water upstairs every morning to get up an appetite for—what? Oh, well, the Lord will provide. If we propose to heat up the great American outdoors, Quimby, I think it's time we had a fire.' Mr. Quimby went out without comment, and left McGee to light his first candle in the dark. For a time he occupied himself with lighting a few of the forty, and distributing them about the room. Soon Quimby came back with kindling and logs, and subsequently a noisy fire roared in the grate. Again Quimby retired, and returned with a generous armful of bedding, which he threw upon the brass bed in the inner room. Then he slowly closed and locked the windows, after which he came in and looked down with good-natured contempt at Mr. McGee, who sat in a chair before the fire. "'I wouldn't wander round none,' he advised. "'You might fall down something, or something. I've been living in these parts off and on for sixty years and more, and nothing like this ever came under my observation before. Howsomever, I guess it's all right if Mr. Bentley says so.' I'll come up in the morning and see you down to the train. What train? inquired Mr. McGee. Your train back to New York City, replied Mr. Quimby. Don't try to start back in the night. There ain't no train till morning. Ha, Quimby, laughed Mr. McGee. You taunt me. You think I won't stick it out, but I'll show you. I tell you, I'm hungry for solitude. That's all right, Mr. Quimby responded. You can't make three square meals a day off solitude. I'm desperate, said McGee. Henry Cabot Lodge must come to me, I say, with tears in his eyes. Ever see the senator that way? No? It isn't going to be an easy job. I must put it over. I must go deep into the hearts of men up here and write what I find. No more shots in the night. Just the adventure of soul and soul. Do you see? 
By the way, here's twenty dollars, your first week's pay as caretaker of a New York Quixote. What's that? asked Quimby. Quixote, explained Mr. McGee, was a Spanish lad who was a little confused in his mind, and who went about the country putting up at summer resorts in midwinter. I'd expect it of a Spaniard, Quimby said. Be careful of that fire. I'll be up in the morning. He stowed away the bill Mr. McGee had given him. I guess nothing will interfere with your lonesomeness. Leastways, I hope it won't. Good night. Mr. McGee bade the man good night and listened to the thump of his boots and the closing of the great front door. From his windows he watched the caretaker move down the road without looking back, to disappear at last in the white night. Throwing off his greatcoat, Mr. McGee noisily attacked the fire. The blaze flared red on his strong, humorous mouth, in his smiling eyes. Next, in the flickering half-light of Suite 7, he distributed the contents of his traveling bags about. On the table he placed a number of new magazines and a few books. Then Mr. McGee sat down in the big leather chair before the fire and caught his breath. Here he was at last. The wild plan he and Hal Bentley had cooked up in that 44th Street Club had actually come to be. Seclusion, McGee had cried. Bermuda, Bentley had suggested. <laughs> A mixture of sea, hotel clerks, and honeymooners, the seeker for solitude had sneered. Some winter place down south, from Bentley. And a flirtation lurking in every corner, from McGee. A country town where you don't know anyone. The easiest place in the world to get acquainted. I must be alone, man, alone. Baldpate Inn, Bentley had cried in his idiom. Why, Billy, Baldpate Inn at Christmas. It must be old John H. Seclusion himself. Yes, here he was. And here was the solitude he had come to find. Mr. McGee looked nervously about, and the smile died out of his gray eyes. For the first time misgivings smote him. Might one not have too much of a good thing? A silence like that of the tomb had descended. He recalled stories of men who went mad from loneliness. What place lonelier than this? The wind howled along the balcony. It rattled the windows. Outside his door lay a great black cave, in summer gay with men and maids now like crusoe's island before the old man landed alone alone all all alone quoted mr mcgee if i can't think here it will be because i'm not equipped with the apparatus i will i'll show the gloomy old critics i wonder what's doing in new york new york mr mcgee looked at his watch eight o'clock the great street was ablaze the crowds were parading from the restaurants to the theaters. The electric signs were pasting lurid legends on a long-suffering sky. The taxis were spraying throats with gasoline. The traffic cop at Broadway and 42nd Street was madly earning his pay. Mr. McGee got up and walked the floor. New York! Probably the telephone in his rooms was jangling. Vainly calling forth to sport with Amaryllis in the shade of the rubber trees, Billy McGee. Billy McGee, who sat alone in the silence on Baldpate Mountain. Few knew of his departure. This was the night of that stupid attempt at theatricals at the plaza. Stupid in itself, but gay, almost giddy, since Helen Faulkner was to be there. 
This was the night of the dinner to carry at the club. This was the night of many diverting things. Mr. McGee picked up a magazine. He wondered how they read in the old days by candlelight. He wondered if they would have found his own stories worth the strain on the eyes. And he also wondered if absolute solitude was quite the thing necessary to the composition of the novel that should forever silence those who sneered at his ability. Absolute solitude! Only the crackle of the fire, the roar of the wind, and the ticking of his watch bore him company. He strode to the window and looked down at the few dim lights that proclaimed the existence of Upper Asquewan Falls. Somewhere down there was the commercial house. Somewhere the girl who had wept so bitterly in that gloomy little waiting room. She was only three miles away, and the thought cheered Mr. McGee. After all, he was not on a desert island. And yet he was alone, intensely, almost painfully alone. Alone in a vast, moaning house that must be his only home until he could go back to the gay city with his masterpiece. What a masterpiece! As though with a surgeon's knife it would lay bare the hearts of men. No tricks of plot, no... Mr. McGee paused, for sharply in the silence the bell of his room telephone rang out. He stood for a moment gazing in wonder, his heart beating swiftly, his eyes upon the instrument on the wall. It was a house phone. He knew that it could only be rung from the switchboard in the hall below. I'm going mad already, he remarked, and took down the receiver. A blur of talk, an electric muttering, a click, and all was still. Mr. McGee opened the door and stepped out into the shadows. He heard a voice below. Noiselessly, he crept to the landing and gazed down into the office. A young man sat at the telephone switchboard. Mr. McGee could see in the dim light of a solitary candle that he was a person of rather hilarious raiment. The candle stood on the top of the safe, and the door of the latter swung open. Sinking down on the steps in the dark, Mr. McGee waited. "'Hello,' the young man was saying. "'How do you work this thing, anyhow? I've tried every peg but the right one. Hello! Hello! I want long distance. Royton. 2876 West, Mr. Andy Rudder. Will you get him for me, sister? Another wait, a long one, ensued. The candle sputtered. The young man fidgeted in his chair. At last he spoke again. Hello? Andy? Is that you, Andy? What's the good word? As quiet as the tomb of Napoleon. Shall I close up shop? Sure. What next? Oh, see here, Andy, I'll die up here. Did you ever hit a place like this in winter? I can't. I... Oh, well, if he says so. Yes, I could do that. But no longer. I couldn't stand it long. Tell him that. Tell him everything's okay. Yes, all right. Well, good night, Andy. He turned away from the switchboard, and as he did so, Mr. McGee walked calmly down the stairs toward him. With a cry, the young man ran to the safe, threw a package inside, and swung shut the door. He turned the knob of the safe several times. Then he faced Mr. McGee. The latter saw something glitter in his hand. "'Good evening,' remarked Mr. McGee pleasantly. "'What are you doing here?' cried the youth wildly. "'I live here,' Mr. McGee assured him. "'Won't you come up to my room? It's right at the head of the stairs. I have a fire, you know.' 
Back into the young man's lean, hawk-like face crept the assurance that belonged with the gay attire he wore. He dropped the revolver into his pocket and smiled a sneering smile. "'You gave me a turn,' he said. "'Of course you live here. Are any of the other guests about? And who won the tennis match today?' "'You are facetious.' Mr. McGee smiled, too. "'So much the better. A lively companion is the very sort I should have ordered tonight. Come upstairs.' The young man looked suspiciously about, his thin nose seemingly scenting plots. He nodded and picked up the candle. "'All right,' he said. "'But I'll have to ask you to go first. You know the way.' His right hand sought the pocket into which the revolver had fallen. "'You honor my poor and drafty house,' said Mr. McGee. "'This way.' He mounted the stairs. After him followed the youth of flashy habiliments, looking fearfully about him as he went. He seemed surprised that they came to Mr. McGee's room without incident. Inside, Mr. McGee drew up an easy chair before the fire and offered his guest a cigar. "'You must be cold,' he said. "'Sit here.' "'A bad night, stranger,' as they remark in stories. "'You've said it,' replied the young man, accepting the cigar. "'Thanks.' He walked to the door leading into the hall and opened it about a foot. "'I'm afraid,' he explained jocosely. "'We'll get to talking and miss the breakfast bell.' He dropped into the chair and lighted his cigar at a candle end. "'Say, you never can tell, can you?' Climbing up old Baldpate, I thought to myself, that hotel certainly makes the Sahara Desert look like a cozy corner. And here you are, as snug and comfortable and at home as if you were in a Harlem flat. You never can tell. And what now? The story of my life? You might relate, Mr. McGee told him, that portion of it that has led you trespassing on a gentleman seeking seclusion at Baldpate Inn. The stranger looked at Mr. McGee. He had an eye that not only looked, but weighed, estimated, and classified. Mr. McGee met it smilingly. "'Trespassing, eh?' said the young man. "'Far be it from me to quarrel with a man who smokes as good cigars as you do. But there's something I haven't quite doped out. That is, who's trespassing, me or you?' "'My right here,' said Mr. McGee, "'is indisputable.' "'It's a big word,' replied the other. "'but you can tack it to my right here and tell no lie. "'We can't dispute, so let's drop the matter. "'With that settled, I am encouraged to pour out the story "'of why you see me here tonight, far from the madding crowd. "'Have you a stray tear? You'll need it. "'It's a sad, touching story, "'concerned with haberdashery and a trusting heart and a fair woman. "'Fair, but, oh, how false!' "'Proceed,' laughed Mr. McGee. I'm an admirer of the vivid imagination. Don't curb yours, I beg of you. It's all straight, said the other in a hurt tone. Every word true. My name is Joseph Bland. My profession, until love entered my life, was that of haberdasher, an outfitter, in the city of Royton, fifty miles from here. I taught the Beau Brummels of the thoroughfares what was doing in London, in the necktie line, I sold them coats with padded shoulders, and collars high and awe-inspiring. I was happy, twisting a piece of silk over my hand to show them how it would look on their heaving bosoms. And then she came. Mr. Bland puffed on his cigar. Yes, he said. 
Arabella sparkled on the horizon of my life. When I have been here in the quiet for about two centuries, maybe I can do justice to her beauty. I won't attempt to describe her now. I loved her, madly. She said I made a hit with her. I spend on her the profits of my haberdashery. I whispered, marriage. She didn't scream. I had my wedding necktie picked out from the samples of a drummer from Troy. He paused and looked at Mr. McGee. Have you ever stood poised on that brink, he asked. Never, replied McGee. But go on, your story attracts me strangely. From here on, the tear I spoke of, please. There flashed on the scene a man she had known and loved in Jersey City. I said flashed. He did, just that. A swell dresser, say. He had John Drew beat by two mauve neckties and a purple frock coat. I had a haberdashery back of me. No use. He outdressed me. I saw that Arabella's love for me was waning. With his chamois-gloved hands, that new guy fanned the ancient flame. He paused. Emotion, or the smoke of the cigar, choked him. Let's make the short story shorter, he said. She threw me down. In my haberdashery, I thought it over. I was blue, bitter. I resolved on a dreadful step. In the night, I wrote her a letter and carried it down to the box and posted it. Life without Arabella, said the letter, was Shakespeare with Hamlet left out. It hinted at the river, carbolic acid, revolvers. Yes, I posted it, and then... And then, urged Mr. McGee. Mr. Bland felt tenderly of the horseshoe pin in his purple tie. This is just between us, he said. At that point, the trouble began. It came from my being, naturally, a very brave man. I could have died. Easy. The brave thing was to live. To go on, day after day, devoid of Arabella. Say, that took courage. I wanted to try it. I'm a courageous man, as I say. You seem so, Mr. McGee agreed. Lion-hearted, assented Mr. Bland. I determined to show my nerve and live. But there was my letter to Arabella. I feared she wouldn't appreciate my bravery. Women are dull sometimes. It came to me maybe she would be hurt if I didn't keep my word and die. So I had to disappear. I had a friend mixed up in affairs at Baldpate. No, I can't give his name. I told him my story. He was impressed by my spirit, as you have been. He gave me a key he had, the key to the door opening from the east veranda into the dining room. So I came up here. I came here to be alone, to forgive and forget, to be forgot, and maybe to plan a new haberdashery in distant parts. Was it your wedding necktie, asked Mr. McGee, that you threw into the safe when you saw me coming? No, replied Mr. Bland, sighing deeply. A package of letters written to me by Arabella at various times. I want to forget them. If I kept them on hand, I might look at them from time to time. My great courage might give way. You might find my body on the stairs. That's why I hid them. Mr. McGee laughed and stretched forth his hand. Believe me, he said, your touching confidence in me will not be betrayed. I congratulate you on your narrative power. You want my story. Why am I here? I am not sure that it is worthy to follow yours. 
but it has its good points, as I have thought it out. He went over to the table and picked up a popular novel upon which his gaze had rested while the haberdasher spun his fabric of love and gloom. On the cover was the picture of a very dashing maiden. "'Do you see that girl?' he asked. "'She is beautiful, is she not?' Even Arabella, in her most splendid moments, could get a few points from her, I fancy. Perhaps you are not familiar with the important part such a picture plays in the success of a novel today. The truth is, however, that the noble art of fiction writing has come to lean more and more heavily on its illustrators. The mere words that go with the pictures grow less important every day. There are dozens of distinguished novelists in the country at this moment who might be haberdashers if it weren't for the long, lean, haughty ladies who are scattered tastefully through their works. Mr. Bland stirred uneasily. I can see you are at a loss to know what my search for seclusion and privacy has to do with all this, continued Mr. McGee. I am an artist. For years I have drawn these lovely ladies who make fiction saleable to the masses. Many a novelist owes his motor-car and his country house to my brush. Two months ago I determined to give up illustration forever, and devote my time to painting. I turned my back on the novelists. Can you imagine what happened? My imagination's a little tired, apologized Mr. Bland. Never mind, I'll tell you. The leading authors whose work I had so long illustrated saw ruin staring them in the face. They came to me on their knees, figuratively. They begged. They pleaded. They hid in the vestibule of my flat. I should say, my studio. They even came up in my dumbwaiter, having bribed the janitor. They wouldn't take no for an answer. In order to escape them and their really pitiful pleadings, I had to flee. I happened to have a friend involved in the management of Baldpate Inn. I'm not at liberty to give his name. He gave me a key. So here I am. I rely on you to keep my secret. If you perceive a novelist in the distance, lose no time in warning me. Mr. McGee paused, chuckling inwardly. He stood looking down at the lovelorn haberdasher. The latter got to his feet and solemnly took McGee's hand. I, I, oh well, you've got me beat a mile, old man, he said. You don't mean to say, began the hurt McGee. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Bland assured him. I believe every word of it. It's all as real as the haberdashery to me. I'll keep my eye peeled for novelists. What gets me is, when you boil our two fly-by-night stories down, I've come here to be alone. You want to be alone. We can't be alone here together. One of us must clear out. Nonsense, answered Billy McGee. I'll be glad to have you here. Stay as long as you like. The haberdasher looked Mr. McGee fully in the eye and the latter was startled by the hostility he saw in the other's face. "'The point is,' said Mr. Bland, "'I don't want you here. Why? Maybe because you recall beautiful dames, on book covers, and in that way, Arabella. Maybe. But what's the use? I put it simply. I got to be alone, alone on Baldpate Mountain. I won't put you out tonight.' "'See here, my friend,' cried Mr. McGee. "'Your grief has turned your head. "'You won't put me out tonight or tomorrow. "'I'm here to stay. "'You're welcome to do the same if you like, "'but you stay with me. "'I know you are a man of courage, 
but it would take at least ten men of courage to put me out of Baldpate Inn.' They stood eyeing each other for a moment. Bland's thin lips twisted into a sneer. "'We'll see,' he said. "'We'll settle all that in the morning.' His tone took on a more friendly aspect. "'I'm going to pick out a downy couch in one of these rooms,' he said, "'and lay me down to sleep. "'Say, I could greet a blanket like a long-lost friend.' Mr. McGee proffered some of the covers that Quimby had given him, and accompanied Mr. Bland to Suite 10 across the hall. He explained the matter of stale air, and assisted in the opening of windows. The conversation was mostly facetious, and Mr. Bland's last remark concerned the fickleness of woman. With a brisk good night, Mr. McGee returned to number seven. But he made no move toward the chilly brass bed in the inner room. Instead, he sat a long time by the fire. He reflected on the events of his first few hours in that supposedly uninhabited solitude, where he was to be alone with his thoughts. He pondered the way and manner of the flippant young man who posed as a lovelorn haberdasher, and under whose flippancy there was a certain air of hostility. Who was Andy Rudder, down in Royton? What did the young man mean when he asked if he could close up shop? Who was the he from whom came the orders? And most important of all, what was in the package now resting in the great safe? Mr. McGee smiled. Was this the stuff of which solitude was made? He recalled the ludicrous literary tale he had invented to balance the moving fiction of Arabella, and his smile grew broader. His imagination, at least, was in a healthy state. He looked at his watch. A quarter of twelve. Probably they were having supper at the plaza now, and Helen Faulkner was listening to the banalities of young Williams. He settled in his seat to think of Miss Faulkner. He thought of her for ten seconds, then stepped to the window. The moon had risen, and the snowy roofs of Upper Asquewan Falls sparkled in the limelight of the heavens. Under one of those roofs was the girl of the station, weeping no more, he hoped. Certainly she had eyes that held even the least susceptible, to which class Mr. McGee prided himself he belonged. He wished he might see her again, might talk to her without interruption from that impossible mamma. Mr. McGee turned back into the room. His fire was but red glowing ashes. He threw off his dressing gown and began to unlace his shoes. There has been too much crude melodrama in my novels, he reflected. It's so easy to write. But I'm going to get away from all that up here. I'm going... Mr. McGee paused, with one shoe poised in his hand. For from below came the sharp crack of a pistol, followed by the crash of breaking glass. End of chapter 2